Remain standing as we turn our attention now to the Lord's Word again. And um, we'll begin in Genesis chapter 50, the last chapter in the book of Genesis. And we'll read a few verses here, uh, verses 15 to 21. Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. These are the words of God. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, Please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The grass withers, the flower fades. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we come together tonight to consider from your word your mighty providence, remembering that the same power by which you created all things that exist, that same power continues to sustain everything that you have created to this very day. Enable us, Lord, to fear you only as we think about this. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Um, Tonight we are looking at the fourth paragraph in the Westminster Confession of Faith, the fifth chapter, as we continue to think about God's providence. And one of the difficult challenges, one of the difficult questions for Christians is, how do you deal with the idea that God providentially overrules all creatures and all their actions, and yet also understand that there is sin and evil in the world? How do, you, how do you resolve those two things? Well, we're going to think about that tonight. In Genesis 50, Joseph noticed that Joseph took it for granted that his brother's evil acts against him, and they were evil, they were true evil, and Joseph accepted that, that they were congruent with God's plan for his life not against it. In all that his brothers did to him, he understood that God was, a, was, a, that God was accomplishing his purpose for Joseph's life. This is what enabled him to endure prison and the mistreatment that he experienced in Egypt. He knew that God's plan for his life was being fulfilled. The problem of evil is something, hear me well, 
that only Christians can discuss. For atheists and agnostics, the problem of evil is a different difficulty altogether. An early Greek philosopher by the name of Epicurus, who lived before Christ, said this. Now, Epicurus, he denied God's existence. He denied the reality of an afterlife. And Epicurus, his argument was as follows. He said this. Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able to prevent evil, but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? And you would say, yes. Then whence cometh evil? Where does it come from? If God can both prevent it, and if he's both willing and able to prevent it. Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? And to that, Epicurus thinks this is the trump card. But the problem for somebody like Epicurus is that in order to make this argument at all, he has to assume the Christian worldview. He has to step out of an atheistic worldview, do you see, and into a Christian worldview to make his argument at all. Why why can we say that? Well, because for the atheist, there is no such thing as God. God doesn't exist. And if there is no such thing as God, then there is no such thing as a standard, a universal moral standard for all creation. And if there is no such thing as a universal moral standard, there's no such thing as evil. And so Epicurus cannot even speak of evil. He cannot define it whatsoever apart from God. In order to do that, he has to step into the Christian worldview and assume that Christianity is true in order to drive it off the rails. He cannot do it from his own worldview. And this is the fallacy. Richard Dawkins, um, in a debate, and Richard Dawkins is a a well-noted atheist He writes of the God delusion. Um, Richard Dawkins, in in one of his debates many years ago, uh, afterward, he was interviewed. And the interviewer asked Dawkins this question. He said, "From, from your worldview, can you say that rape is wrong? And as he always does, he said, well, what difference does it make? And the interviewer pressed him. He said, can an atheist say that rape is wrong. And Dawkins honestly said, no. And that's true. Because if there is no God, there is no universal moral standard, and the atheist cannot define what evil is. That's why we say, well, the problem of evil is only a problem that Christians can talk about. Because we acknowledge that there is a universal lawgiver. There is a universal right and wrong. And therefore, there's a, we can define what evil is. The secular humanists, in other words, have to assume the truth of the Christian worldview in order to criticize it. 
They have to assume it's true in order to criticize it. My neighbor, as I mentioned before, will say, I don't believe in God because children starve. To which I respond, well, if there is no God, who cares if children starve? There's no standard. There's no definition of, of right and wrong. There's no reason to care. If there is no God, our response to Epicurus is, if there is no God, then what is evil? You cannot define it. So tonight, we are thinking about this problem. If God exercises his providence over all creatures and all their actions, then explain to me sin. And this is the explanation that the Westminster Confession provides in paragraph 4. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extends itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men. And that not by a bare permission, but such as hath joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to his own ends, holy ends. Yet so, as the sinfulness thereof proceeds only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. And tonight I want to consider this with you in just three points. One, that God's providence extends to the fall and all sins. Second, that God's providence directs sin to his glory. And then lastly, God's providence does not author or create sin. Let's notice, first of all, that God's providence extends to the fall and all sins. The confession begins with this paragraph with something of, a, something of an although... Although we may not fully understand this truth, here it is. This is what they're saying. Although we may not fully understand this truth, how are we saying that? Well, the almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God manifest themselves in all of his works. And they're drawing that from Romans chapter 11, especially verse 33. Let me read that to you. For God has consigned all to disobedience, this is verse 32, that he may have mercy on all. And then Paul, in this transition point, says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? He's asking you, do you know his mind infinitely? Have you counseled him? Have you given him advice? Where we begin then is understanding that we cannot fully grasp all of God's ways. We simply can't. And this is not an aspect of our sin. It's not an aspect of sin that you and I cannot fully understand God's ways. That there are mysteries. There's a gap between the understanding of the finite and the infinite. That gap is not sinful. That is the creator-creature 
distinction. And because of that distinction, there are certain aspects of God's ways that are to us unfathomable. Even if you tied a weight around your feet, you'd never reach the bottom of God's mind. And they are inscrutable. You cannot be his critic. This is where the confession begins as we think about this. We have to understand the creator-creature distinction. And yet, the scriptures teach us that God's providence extends to the fall and all sins. In other words, remember, what are we thinking about when we talk about God's providence? We are saying that God upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures and all their actions. He upholds all creatures and all their actions. He directs all creatures and all their actions. He disposes all creatures and all their actions. And He governs all creatures and all their actions. That is what we mean by providence. That God's will overrules all of creation. There's no such thing, in other words, listen, there's no such thing as nature operating by its instinct. There's no such thing as blind force. Everything, there's no fortune, no luck. Everything is directed by God to his own ends. That's what the scriptures teach us. And we get a few illustrations here we take from the confession. One is God's providence, that providence extending to the fall of Adam and to all creatures and their sins. Think about David and his census. You remember the census that David took? God told him, don't take a census. Don't take a census of your people. Trust me. Trust me. Don't trust in horses. Trust in God. I will be your deliverer. I am your guide. And yet, in 2 Samuel 24, David took a census. And we find, in 2 Samuel 24, 1, hear these words. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and the Lord, it says, incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. 2 Samuel 24, who incited David? The Lord incited David. And yet, we turn over a few pages, and in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, 1, we read these words. Then... Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Now, you have an option. You can say, well, the scriptures are obviously erroneous here. You've got one author saying God incited, another author saying the devil incited. It's all wrong. I'm going to throw it away. Actually, what the scriptures are showing you is that even in the devil's work as a fallen angel, the Lord's purpose is prevailing. So that the author in 2 Samuel can say, the Lord incited, even when he was using the devil to do it. We learn also of the lying spirits against Ahab in 1 Kings 22, verses 22 and 23. Let me give you another example. Saul's suicide. Saul's suicide as the execution of God's judgment against him. Listen to the words of 1 Chronicles 10, 4, and then verses 13 to 14. Then Saul, you know this story, said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through. He knew the battle was over. He wanted to die on his sword. 
lest these uncircumcised come and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell on it. The Scriptures continue in First Chronicles 10.13. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Now listen to what the Scriptures say. Therefore the Lord put him to death. And turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Saul committed self-murder. And yet, the scriptures say, this was the judgment of God. We could look at the example of Shimei cursing David in 2 Samuel 16.10. And Shimei cursing him and cursing him and cursing him. You remember when they're fleeing from Jerusalem and Absalom's hot on his heels and Shimei comes out and he's cursing David and throwing rocks at everybody. Um, like Ernest T. Bass, I always get that picture. And, um, and David says, let him be. Let him be. What have I to do with you, sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, then... Who shall say, why have you done so? And then the the great example, the execution of our Lord. In Acts 2, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Even in in the wicked acts of his brother, brothers, think about this now. Even in the wicked acts of his brothers, Joseph saw the power, wisdom, and goodness of God. This is the Christian interpretation of wicked acts. The secular humanist says the world is purposeless and chaotic. He sees Hamas bomb Israel and says, why did that happen? He doesn't have the framework to understand or even define evil. Not so for the Christian. He understands wicked acts still to be the outworking of God's providence over His creation and for His own ends. These examples that we've used, David's census, Saul's suicide, Shimei cursing David, the crucifixion of Christ... These examples make clear that angels and men acted and God acted. Men and angels freely chose sinful courses of action. Yet the scriptures attribute those actions to the will of God also. God incited and Satan incited. Saul chose and acted, and this was from the hand of God as judgment. Now, our response might be, well, these passages teach us that God permitted these things to happen. He permitted them to happen. That's what the Scriptures mean by that. The Westminster Confession would say, "Mm, not so fast, because it goes on, doesn't it? The next thing that we'll see, secondly, not only... um, Does God's providence extend to the fall and to sin? But 
Secondly, God's providence directs sin to his glory. We are comfortable, especially when we're talking to our atheist friends who have to assume our worldview just to criticize us, saying, well, God permits evil to happen. That wasn't really God. That was, that was him permitting. And I have a, a dear friend who we will sit with other parents who've got children with cancer, and he'll say, God didn't want your child to have cancer. That's zero comfort. That is zero comfort. We are, in our way, attempting to distance God from sin. We know that He is perfect and righteous and holy. And if He had His way, there would be no sin in the world. We might say that. Yet we have to choose. Either God is an absolute sovereign who works all things for good, or He is a demigod who, as Epicurus said, cannot accomplish His will. The Westminster Confession goes on and it says that His providence extends to, um, to sinful acts not by a bare permission. Now God does, there is a sense in which God permits certain things. Listen to Acts 14 verse 16. Paul speaking there says, in past generations He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. And what he's saying is, in, in former dispensations, as it were, I'm using that word in a reformed way, in, in former times, God permitted the nations to walk in their own ways. In other words, what he's saying is God's special providence was to a particular people, Israel, in that time. But we aren't to escape the conclusion that all history is church history. All history is redemptive history. Under the old covenant, God's special providence was toward Israel, and He left the other nations in their rebellion for the most part. But under the new covenant, He draws all nations to Christ and magnifies His enthroned Son. So in past generations, God allowed certain nations to walk in their own ways. That's permission. But we aren't to confuse that with God stepping away and just allowing things to work out. The confession gives us three things to think about. He binds it, or it says His, his wise bounding. He orders their sins, and He governs it. What does that mean? He bounds it. In other words, he establishes a boundary. And I think this is so helpful for you to think about. Wicked men can only act wickedly insofar as God permits them. Wicked men do not have unfettered, unregulated permission to do all they please. They do not have that freedom to carry out all of their imagination. This is what we call common grace. It is the common grace of God that restrains the wickedness of evil and does not permit them to be as evil as they could be. He bounds it. He creates a boundary. He orders it. The actions of wicked men ultimately serve to accomplish God's ends. And he governs it. The wicked 
are governed by God as his created subjects. He directs them as he pleases. And again, we have some illustrations from the scriptures. So on one hand, God permitted the nations to act as he focused on Israel and bringing the Redeemer, the Messiah, to light. On the other hand, he was directing their wickedness to his own ends. Think about these passages. Psalm 76 verse 10 says that the wrath of wicked men results in God's praise. The wrath of wicked men results in God's praise. Surely, the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. The wrath of men will praise you. In other words, you think of these men who are rattling their sabers and they're shaking their fists at God and they're so angry. And the psalmist says, ultimately this will turn out to your praise. One of the oldest um, Jewish commentators on this, his name is Rashi, he says this about that. The anger of the wicked results in the creatures thanking the Holy One, blessed be He. When they show their anger and the Holy One, blessed be He, punishes them. Everyone praises Him when they see that their anger is of no avail. We praise the Lord when we see that the wicked rattle their sabers and God brings them to nothing. We thank the Lord. You think about the illustration of Nebuchadnezzar here. He took three men and he threw them into the fire. His anger was raised against these men because they wouldn't worship him. And he threw them into the fire. And what happened? Men thanked God. He saved them. Who's the fourth man walking there? It resulted in the the praise of God. The anger of wicked men, in other words, is shown to be like the angry bark of a toothless dog. In the end, they only result in Jehovah's praise. Also, we learn that he turns the wicked wherever he pleases. 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 28 says, Because you have raged against me, and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. In other words, send you back. I want you to turn. 2 Kings 19, let's look at this together. 2 Kings chapter 19. We have seen the Lord's judgment against Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, ultimately transforming his heart. Now let's look at 2 Kings 19 and verse 20. Then... Isaiah, this is the prophet, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. Now look over at verse 28, uh, verse 27. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in, and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me, and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put my hook in your mouth, in your, in your nose, and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. What the Lord is saying, this is a prophecy against the king of Assyria. 
God used them on the one hand to discipline his people for their faithlessness. And then when his purpose for these godless people had gone away, he put his hook in his mouth, in their mouth, and turned them back. We see similar things in Genesis 50. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 6 and 7, we've read before where uh, godless nations rose up against Israel thinking we're going to accomplish our will and all along they are accomplishing the will of God. I think as you think through this, you see the interworking of the will of God that, that ultimately even wicked men are accomplishing the will of God, even in their wicked acts. On the one hand, you can say, I, okay, I see this. I don't understand how the two go together exactly. This is definitely part of the unfathomable aspect of God's wisdom. I don't get it. But you should get the comfort from it. Even if you don't know how the flower grows, enjoy its nectar in this way. Even in evil times, when the government seems against us, we look behind it all to see the providence of God. We don't ask, why is all this happening to us? Instead, we ask, what is God doing? And what is He calling us to do? We recognize that He's still doing something that corresponds to Understand this. He's still doing something that corresponds to building the church of Jesus Christ. He is sanctifying His people, sometimes chastising us for disobedience. Get back on the course. Get back to evangelism. Get back to discipleship. And drawing men to Himself, demonstrating the folly of atheism and humanism, and glorifying His judgments. But at all times, God is working. And then lastly, we'll just notice that God's providence does not author sin. We're putting all these things together. Noticing that God's providence extends to the fall. And all the evil acts of men, not just by a bare permission, He is working in and through it. Establishing boundaries directing them to His ends and governing all that they do. The wicked, in other words, are not just free radicals out here in the culture doing what they please while the Christians are the ones who say, Lord, we'll obey Your law, but help us. God is directing all things to His own ends. And then we resolve simply by saying, and yet in all of this, God does not author sin. He's not the creator of sin. One, he does not tempt anyone to sin. We learn in James chapter 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Also, the wickedness in the world does not originate in God. 1 John 2.16 For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Thirdly, 
Do not confuse God's apparent silence for His approval. Would you turn to Psalm 50 with me? Let's begin reading in verse 16. Psalm 50, verse 16. But to the wicked he says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. Now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. What the Lord shows that there are times where it seems like He's, he's silent, he's letting things just unfold. And God stepped away, perhaps. He's an absentee parent. But what the Scriptures remind us is that God is not absent. He's allowing men to fill up their sins. You remember, he said this to Abraham. He says, your people will be uh, uh, foreigners in a, uh, in, a, uh, uh, in a foreign land until the Assyrians fill up their sins, their wickedness. But there will come a time for rebuke. God's, God providentially governs directs, disposes, and upholds all men, including the wicked, and all their actions. And God's providence never means He permits or allows men to behave wickedly and then cleans up behind them. At all times, He is bounding, ordering, and governing their actions so that their actions achieve His ends, not theirs. Yet in all this, we must never charge God with evil All that is evil in this world proceeds from the desires of fallen men and angels. And I want to give you just a a quotation here from John Calvin that I find to be helpful as we think through this. He says this, By an erroneous opinion prevailing in all ages, an opinion almost universally prevailing in our own day, and I think we could say that about our day. In other words, that all things happen fortuitously. The true doctrine of providence has not only been obscured, but almost buried. He says this, If one falls among robbers or ravenous beasts, if a sudden gust of wind at sea causes shipwreck, if one is struck down by the fall of a house or a tree, if another, when wandering through desert paths, meets with deliverance, or after being tossed by the waves, arrives in port and makes some wondrous hairbreadth escape from death. All these occurrences, prosperous as well as adverse, carnal sense will attribute to fortune. But whoso has learned from the mouth of Christ that all the hairs of his head are numbered will look farther for the cause and hold that all events whatsoever are governed by the secret counsel of God. The reason that this is so important for you to understand is that it is God's will for you to fear Him 
only. Let's close by remembering that we have this confidence. God is with us and He is for us. His plans will prevail and Christ's kingdom will be magnified and manifested in all the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we confess that in these truths, although we we trace all of them out in the Scriptures and we, we find as much detail as we can to understand this glorious doctrine of Your providence. Father, we confess that, that here we are, we are wading in deep waters. In fact, they are above our head. But we thank You that You've given us aspects to know aspects of your providence and the origin and existence of evil that we can take to heart. And Lord, we thank you that you've assured us that in all things you are working for the good of your people and the glory of your Son and the upbuilding of your church. And that comforts us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.